Hey guys, quick note, this was recorded in mid-July, so it was before the announced deal between Manchin and Chuck Schumer, so some deal may actually come out by the end of this week, but this was recorded without that in mind. Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, apologies if there are any sound quality issues. I'm recording this on my iPhone's voice memo function. Had a last minute cancellation, so I had to rearrange the schedule and I decided to release an episode that was promised a long time ago. It's my dad, Dr. Mark Trexler, coming on the show to offer a rebuttal to Alex Epstein's episode about fossil fuels that came out late in May. Got a bunch of, let's just say, negative feedback on that episode. Folks asked for an alternative point of view. My dad sent me a very long email critiquing my performance, so I thought I would just have him come on the show himself and offer that perspective. This is a long episode, especially because I know my dad's so it's easy to go longer. We go into a bunch of topics from his critiques of Alex's point of view to also a broader conversation about politics, political theory, how change works, what's the actual problem given the climate change issue in our political system, why we haven't talked about on the realignment, all those other good things. This is exactly the type of episode I want to do as we expand the show and go into this new season. So if you like our work and have not subscribed yet, I would love for you to go to realignment.supercast.com or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's realignment.supercast.com. You can support us at $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for a lifetime membership. We're going to start doing in-person recordings, increasing the cadence, offering more video, upping the staff, so many great things. We need your monetary support to actually accomplish all that. All that said, huge thank you to our active sponsor, Lincoln Network. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Mark Trexler, welcome to The Realignment. Happy to be here. This episode has been a long time coming. Listeners will remember that back at the end of May, as I was in the middle of moving to Austin, I booked an episode of Alex Epstein to talk about his book, all about fossil fuels. And to say this episode was controversial would probably be the understatement of this podcast's short but serious existence. Lots of pushback. People were frustrated with the way I handled the interview. They didn't quite agree with me on the topic. So I thought the perfect person to bring onto the show is a person who is very near and dear to me. It's my dad, Dr. Mark Trexler. He wrote a very serious email with critiques of the episode. So thought that he'd be the right person to have come on this episode. So dad, that's the last time I'm going to call you dad this episode. I'm going to call you Mark because it's difficult to interview someone that way. Welcome to the show. I'm very happy to be here, Marshall. You could tell that I'm nervous to hear because I just rambled through that introduction. But just so it's clear, this isn't a pure nepotism, aka Marshall has parental guilt bit. What's your background in the climate change space? I've been focused on climate change for the last 35 years. So I started working on climate change right as I was finishing my dissertation and uh, have worked at the NGO level. I've worked with the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change. I've been a management consultant to companies around the world on climate change for, for more than 20 years. And now I'm focused on building a software platform, the Climate Web, which is a knowledge management solution for all things relating to understanding and trying to solve climate change. And this is just a fun family 
quasi bragged they when you talked about the intergovernmental panel does that technically mean you're a quasi nobel prize winner of al gore or what's like the actual way well let me let me put it this way there are people who put on their resume that that they you know were a nobel prize winner on the basis of uh the ipcc having been awarded or sharing the nobel prize with al gore I do not do that at all. So, you know, it it was nice for the IPCC to to win that prize and and I was part of the IPCC at at the time. Uh but I think calling myself a Nobel Prize winner would be stretching things just a tad. Because it was basically so can you introduce both the IPCC but also the specific award that at the Nobel Prize level that Al Gore got because it seems to me that the IPCC in that case is institutional. It's not literal. It's not as if anyone else but Al Gore was called on stage. But can you just introduce what we're referring to? Well, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was set up in 1988 uh, by basically the World Meteorological Organization. And it was set up to be the uh, scientific advisory body to the world's governments. And so it puts out reports every four, five, six years. It's put out six major assessment reports at this point, each one many thousands of pages assessing uh, the state of the science, assessing the, the state of you know, climate change mitigation, what needs to happen next. But it is a government advisory body. So governments sit down at the end of the day and, and basically have to approve at least the, the main policymaker summary. Uh, and so arguably, the IPCC tends to be a bit conservative because it relies only on peer-reviewed published uh, materials. So it's always, by definition, several years behind. And, and it doesn't do a great job of dealing with, with risk and, and emphasizing risk because the scientists on the IPCC don't want to be perceived as, uh, as alarmists. And so it's a good organization. It does a huge amount of work. Um, and, and it was given the, the, the Nobel Peace Prize basically in recognition of, of climate change becoming recognized as a, as a big issue uh, back during the 1990s. And, um, uh, and it just happened to be at the same time that, that Al Gore had come out with his uh, movie. So it ended up being a, a shared award, uh, you know, Al Gore and, and 5,000 of his closest IPCC friends. Wow. So putting that in your resume really is a stretch from the award winner perspective. Okay. So now that we've got your credentials, your background, let's just start with your, what was just your reaction to the episode? Aside from me being a poor interviewer when I'm tired. (laughs) It's always interesting to see like like Alex Epstein's in terms of there are several of them out there. There are several relatively new books coming at, at this from, from different uh, directions. To me, he was making three fundamental points. One is that people who, are, who say we should be trying to get off fossil fuels ultimately are trying to, to go back to, to teepee, living in teepees and, and having no impact on the earth. 
that what struck me as just totally off the wall and silly. I'm not, and I'm not quite sure what the point of, of that was. He made a big deal. Can we, about, can we pause? Let's yeah. go through the points point by point. I basically think he is referring to Extinction Rebellion, various, not quite sure if they're even still active, eco-terrorist groups, and then probably very, very, very young Sunrise Movement Gen Zers who are overly zealous in their descriptions of both what climate change will do and what society should respond to it. That's separate from serious policymakers, serious organizations, bodies like the IPCC, et cetera. So I think that's what he's basically saying. He's basically painting a very specific part of the movement as making arguments that are adjacent to the TP's bit. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure you could find somebody who who would sort of agree we ought to go back to to living in in not living in houses. But I mean, not such a fringe uh, part of of this movement. And and even the people, even most of the really extreme people, they're not they're not saying they want to give up all the comforts of civilization. They're just saying they want to switch to renewable energy tomorrow. That gets into the question of of how long it'll take to switch, but um, but sort of characterizing. I mean, he basically said that that the environmental movement and the climate change movement has as its ultimate goal letting the work the Earth go totally back to to its wild state. And 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 again, if there's anybody that actually believes that, it's three people on the entire planet. So this is interesting then because. A huge parts of part of Alex's conception of himself, like I, he refers to himself as a philosopher, um, and you could think that's cringe or not, but it's clearly his academic background. I think what he's arguing is that there is a philosophy that's attendant to, let's say, like Malthusianism, that's demonstrated by people saying things like, "Oh, we can't have kids." This, 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 or that. So you, do, 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 I guess what I'm hearing you basically say, though, is that he's overly extrapolating or putting on a people beliefs they don't actually have. Yeah. I, yes. I. Yeah. And but he's also he's also sort of confusing what people are are saying. He's because he's he's saying that if you try and move away rapidly from fossil fuels, it would mean the collapse of civilization. And therefore, since a lot of people are arguing for rapidly moving away from fossil fuels, by implication, they must be in favor of the collapse of civilization. But that's not at all what they're saying. They're simply saying, we think we can move away from fossil fuels rapidly, and we ought to do that because of climate change. They're certainly not advocating for the collapse of civilization. And and but, and but he's, he's making that inductive leap that you know, because, because he believes that rapidly moving away from fossil fuels would lead to the collapse of civilization, then by definition, anybody trying to address climate change is advocating for the collapse of civilization. And, and that, that's just sort of silly. Can you explain what you mean by rapidly move away from fossil fuels? This is the really big issue. And, and it's a point that, that he makes some legitimate points on. You, there, there, there is a wing of the climate movement that argues that we could move away from fossils, that we could be 80% of the way 
moving from fossil fuels to a renewables-based system by 2030, and we could be 100% to a renewable energy system by 2050, and that that would let us meet sort of the global target, either the 1.5 degree target or the two degree target. And by that, you mean the temperature, overall temperature increase. the The overall average global temperature target which is what everybody gives a lot of lip service to. And and if we could actually get rid of fossil fuels in the next one to three decades entirely, we might be able to hit one of those targets. And so, so there is this school of thought that we can do it very, very rapidly. Mark Jacobson at Stanford has published on this extensively. Other people have as well. They have computer models showing how we can do all of this. Um, but then there are other people that say, well, that's just ridiculously optimistic. It's going to take much longer than that. And, and Vaclav Smil just came out with a book a couple of months ago, arguing that, yes, we should be tackling climate change. Yes, we should be moving away from fossil fuels, but it's going to take much longer than we think because you know, we are totally dependent on fossil fuels and, and it fossil fuels have made the industrial civilization that we have today possible. Interestingly enough, is not too different from what he's essentially saying. He He is. No, that's you're absolutely right. He is emphasizing the importance of fossil fuels. And he argues that that people in the climate change space um, don't acknowledge that they never acknowledge how how important fossil fuels have been and how important they are and how desirable they are. I mean, none of his points there, none of his points about fossil fuels are incorrect in that sense. But but I'm not sure that that serious people in this space don't recognize how dependent we've been on fossil fuels, that fossil fuels made the industrial revolution possible. Most of today's comforts are the result of our use of fossil fuels. And, you know, and, and it's hard to come up with a better way of transporting energy than coal, natural gas, and oil. They are superb vehicles for storing and transferring energy. The problem is that you know, basically we're, we're, throw, we're taking stuff that was created over millions and millions of years, we're burning it all in the space of a hundred years. And the saying goes, there's an, an old uh, saying, Tanstaffel, uh, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And what's basically happening is that that we're putting all this stuff into the air and there is no free lunch. Now we're gonna start to see what happens next with climate change. And what people are saying is, how fast can we get off fossil fuels? And yes, a lot of people are probably very unrealistic in their views of how quickly we can get off fossil fuels, but that doesn't mean it's not a good idea to get off them as quickly as we can. Which camp are you in to set it up in terms of how you seem to find it? There's the camp of this can be done in one to three decades. And then there's the other camp of this. And both camps agree this needs to be done. But there is the this is going to take longer than you think. Like, which camp are you in? Well, I, it, it sort of depends what underlying assumption you use. If you made me climate dictator of the world. No, so that's not, no, that's, see, but, but, and we'll get into this later. I, I, I get what you're, what you're hinting at, but you cannot separate, you, you have to assume there's no climate dictator. 
Right. So if there Gibbons, is no, if there, if if you're looking at reality, so to speak, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not it's not clear to me that we're that we're going to rapidly decarbonize or even try to rapidly decarbonize. You have to remember that you know in the in the 50 years since people have started talking about climate change, you know, the first major paper on on sort of climate risk was was written in 1957. Uh, so, so we've been talking about climate change for more than 60 years, and, and it was announced to have arrived you know, 30 years ago. We signed a climate treaty. During all of that period, CO2 emissions have, have doubled, tripled, quadrupled during that period. So you know, we've been talking about this for, for 50 years CO2 emissions are much higher than they were back then. And so the idea that now we're going to turn around and in 10 years go to zero, even if you can get a computer model to deliver that, uh, I, just don't, I just don't see any sign that we're, we're going to actually try and do anything like that. And I think this is a little unfair because Alex isn't perfectly here to defend himself, but I almost wish if I were to be his book editor he'd engaged very specifically, at least rhetorically, with that side of the argument. Because what I can be convinced of is the only, I mean, this is why your dictator thing is helpful. I mean, even with centralized planning, I'm just struggling to imagine. I, I do not, can you, let me put it this way. Explain to me in a completely steel manned fashion, how someone who thinks this could be done by 2030 to 2040, thinks that can be done under current or even best case conditions. So what here's what I mean by best case. They fix gerrymandering, proportional representation, like all, all of the most like technocratic good governance fixes. Citizens United is totally like overturned. And by the way, I don't think that would at all change climate policy. We'll get into that later. But let's just let's give them all the political change they want within reason. I don't see how you they're can not- possibly achieve that. Yeah, but they're not. They're not. They're not. They, they're not talking about any of that stuff. They're they're doing computer optimization models and simply seeing, you know, how quickly can we build windmills? How quickly can we add solar? How quickly can we add hydro? Uh, and 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 if you have a, a if you let a computer just sort of do this, then uh, you can make things happen very very quickly in the computer. A friend of mine did a study last year, a risk expert out of Sandia National Labs, and his study was basically saying, look, we're, we're not going to optimize our response. Even if we try as hard as we can, our response will not be optimal in the sense of a computer model uh, that, that is able to, to go for optimization. And his study concluded that even if we try as hard as we can, uh, we the best we will probably be able to do is 3.5 degrees of average global temperature change, not 1.5 or two. And 3.5 degrees is very bad. And and he he basically concluded that given just the realities of the world, uh, that is probably about the best we can do. And 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 I tend to go along with that view. And. I want to stay focused real quick on the 10 to 20 year folks. What is their actual, what's their path? So I'll stop, I'll stop critiquing them and just ask the question of like, how do they see this coming about? So what's separate? So like you've got the computer, what is the computer saying essentially happens to reach those numbers? 
it well, it's just saying that you 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 produce a lot of batteries, you produce a lot of 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 hydropower and pump storage as as in effect a battery. Uh, you produce an enormous amount of wind energy and solar energy. I mean, you you just start building this stuff out the wazoo, and um, and over 20, 30 years, it 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 basically displaces all fossil fuels. I mean, the the most extreme views and Mark Jacobson's view, in fact, he says we can do this without nuclear energy and without biofuels, which sort of gets into a couple of other topics that, that have sometimes almost religious overtones. His computer models basically say we can simply build enough green energy sources to, to run on, on a totally renewable system uh, within... 30 years, and we can be 80% of the way there in uh, in about 10 years. That's what they're arguing. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people want to believe that. And so that's where you get a lot of the conversation in the climate space is, yeah, we can do this. But if, if you look at it just a little more realistically in terms of how things actually work, uh, it, it's going to be a lot harder than that. What is the Mark Jacobs theory of change when it comes to something like that. Because what's interesting for me, as you know, I'm a, I'm a non-expert, I'm a non-graduate degree holder in any of these topics, but what I am decently expert on is just the political process and how these things actually work. Look at the COVID response, right? There are all these big books and think pieces that came out in early 2020, basically saying COVID is such this massive impact with so many clear examples of how a lack of preparedness made the world discernibly worse, we're going to see the equivalent of a New Deal-style response. That didn't happen in the case of COVID. Now, that's largely because of the fact that the topic got incredibly politicized, but climate change is just as politicized. It's slightly different valences, but the same general direction. So what is the more radical theory of change for why that happens? Like, Why doesn't America with a Republican house at a minimum. How do they do that? There isn't one. There, there is no radical, there is no theory of change built into a computer model. The computer model is simply saying, you know, what, what, what can we do physically? What, you know, in a sense, it's in a perfect world with all the right policies and with all the right incentives, what could we accomplish? And, and then you run the computer model. So there, there is no theory of change built into it as, and, and that, that's a key problem because we're not, we're, our, the system isn't set up at all to make any of this stuff happen fast. I guess to be fair, I suspect what Mark Jacobs would say, not having read his work or anything is, my job as the, the expert, the scientist, the analyst is to say, hey, AOC, Hey, Joe Biden, here's the data. Here's what we could do. It's your job to translate it. Right. I think the gap, though, is because everything that they are describing is actually not technically a political win, there's actually no incentive for a politician to on their own come up with the real path on this, given just the set of circumstances. So, my challenge to the likely non existent in terms of this podcast audience who does hold that more 10, 20 year perspective is the task to me hasn't been about calculating battery transition times for basically the past 10 years. I basically, since 
this is when we should, we could, we could talk about this now or later, but my, from my perspective, the second that president Obama wasn't able to pass climate legislation in 2010, this shifted from a specific policy and science problem to a political analysis problem. And I see that work as lacking on the aggressive side. I guess to be fair, Sunrise Movement did the sit-in. That's a theory of change. Like, let's sit in Nancy Pelosi's office and then AOC gets elected. She has energy. She's exciting. She'll go join our protest. But very clearly, that didn't work. That was off limits as an actual method of change as early as 2019. Extinction Rebellion makes it hard for people to ride the tube in London sometimes. Then there are the folks who will block highways. But could you just help me understand, so I'm just not being unfair, because once again, I haven't fully done the reading here, what do you see as the political approach Put aside the scientists for a second, right? Because I know you're well read on the broader movement. Like, what what is the general political strategy here? Well, I think that's that is the 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 trillion dollar question, and and whether there is such a strategy. Yeah, um, it, it right now the strategy is let's let's all go out and and start a new organization and do research, and you know, there's all kinds of new. Uh, NGOs and companies being started up for R&D, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, this is a massively dynamic area right now, but it, it, it's sort of like, you know, having 3000 chimpanzees in a room and trying to recreate Shakespeare. It's not easy to see how it all comes together in the way that we need it to. An interesting point here is that uh, we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stones and and we will leave the fossil fuel age. I mean, it, it, at some point we will have better sources of energy and it won't make sense to be burning fossil fuels with the health impacts, et cetera. The problem is, is that I can envision, and I think perhaps the most likely scenario is that we'll celebrate sort of the end of fossil fuels the same day that, that we announce that we've committed to four degrees centigrade of average global temperature change. And that's that's the real problem here. And the real pity is that we will decarbonize, but if we decarbonize too slowly, which we are and will, uh, then we're going to have missed a huge opportunity to accelerate that process. And we're going to be faced with potentially catastrophic levels of climate change, at least for a lot of people uh, around the world. See, it's interesting. You're getting to a long-running conversation that you and I have had around the lack of climate change focus on the realignment, because everything you just said, from my perspective, is what's going to end up happening. The political consensus isn't there. The specific coalitions aren't there. The short to medium-term costs are too high. And the issue and I want to get into this in a second, has been so infected with culture war dynamics that in a time of hyperpolarization and these other issues, there is no way you don't end up waking up in 2050 and we finally have fusion energy, let's say, and it's four degree, there's a four degree increase. 
Dude, so I just haven't engaged with the topic because my, my, my I, here's how I can, oh, this is good. I want to know how you conceptualize climate change because here's how I conceptualize climate change. Climate change is this incredibly shitty thing that is going to exist this century because at various points in the past, we missed off ramps in the same way that a shitty part of the 21st century is that the US, the West, and our allies in the Asia Pacific region are going to be challenged by autocratic dictatorships, namely Russia and China. And there are going to be all sorts of really horrible costs because of that fact, both in Ukraine, Taiwan, and moving into the future. But it would have required the 1990s playing out differently, it would require the 2000s playing out differently. And now we're just stuck with it. So I basically think of climate change as being an intractable part of this century. And therefore, this is meant to be dealt with as opposed to like solving it. Maybe that's just pessimism. That's how I conceive of it. I don't really see it as an issue that's up for grabs in the same way as a topic like immigration or trade policy or supply chains or even our foreign policy stance. How do you think of this? Well, you know, the thing to remember here is, is that is climate change is, is unique in terms of the type, the problems that you're talking about, just the, the characteristics of, of the problem. Uh, I mean, two things. One is you know recognizing that the last 10,000 years during which time you know basically our civilization has evolved we've had climatic stability on the planet in terms of average global temperature has been within a very close band for the last 10,000 years so all of our agricultural systems everything is adapted to that that stability and now we've left that stability behind we're now already well outside that bound. So we're, we're in uncharted territory and, and we're, we're pushing the system uh, really hard. There's a great quote that I've never figured out who said it, but talking about how our risk brains are still searching for lions in the Serengeti, in that you know, our, our brains evolved to, to perceive risk because we saw it. We saw a pattern. We saw a lion. We saw a red berry that's poisonous and, and we avoid it. There are a lot of books that have been written about this, that, that our brains are simply not suited to thinking about and responding to a problem like climate change, which happens gradually. You can't really see it day to day. You can, you can hope that it never happens. Uh, and that's before you get to culture wars and, and misinformation, et cetera. So for us to solve climate change would be really remarkable just in terms of, of how, we, how we think. A lot of people say, well, all we need to do is to get a social movement like for civil rights, et cetera. And it's not at all clear you can build the same kind of social movement around climate change that grew up around uh, the civil rights movement. It's, it's a totally different problem that, that we perceive totally differently. So it's just not clear where the impetus to you know, have revolutionary change uh, comes from. No, and I'm happy that you, I mean, you listened to my episode of John McWhorter when we were talking about the difference between civil rights movements today and then that in the 1960s. And the basic point we were agreeing on is, and once again, I'm being very precise here, the claim is not that with 1965, every single issue facing Black America was improved. It was just that the civil rights movement of the 1960s was successful in a way that future civil rights movements probably never could be because EOD, the ask, in terms of the stage of the problem we were at, 
was actually pretty straightforward in terms of what was being asked of things. So it was, hey, codify that you can't prevent Black people from voting in the South. There's going to be violations of that. There are going to be issues, but there's this broad top-down bureaucratic approach that was implemented over the course of you know the next 40, 50 years. And obviously, the whole conversation on voter suppression in the South can be a whole other episode. But broadly speaking, there was like this one broad thing that needed to be done. There's no equivalent of a broad thing when it comes to climate change or, if, or with American racial justice issues today. Um, there is no non-discrimination act in ha- housing. There is, do you know what I mean? So like the, the, the civil rights metaphor, whenever someone uses the civil rights movement metaphor, I automatically degrade them in terms of my respect for their political analysis, because it should take just a baseline Wikipedia level of reading to understand these are just not tr- comparable in any way whatsoever. Right. The other thing that you hear all the time in the climate space is that all we need to do is have the political will and all we need to do is get out and vote uh, to, to solve climate change. And you know, given gerrymandering and given all the other things that are going on in the US, that's just not true at all. And so it, it, it people, people- Oh, oh sorry, this is, we, we disagreed with this on text. I need to bring this, I need to bring up this debate. I disagree with, so this is, this is interesting. Operationally, I disagree with you in the sense that, oh, okay, this is actually helpful. Why is it that you, sorry, let me just say this very precisely. Voting, no, no, because actually, no, this is, I'll I'll put it directly. I'll keep my struggles in because I'm trying to be, be, be very precise here. If there was a majority of people in this country who unironically actually felt that climate change was an existential risk, that it was worth sacrificing for, that there was need for like a societal long-term project in the same way that there's consensus around going to the moon. Like we spent tens and even hundreds of billions of dollars in today's dollars on going to the moon. I think that would happen regardless of gerrymandering. Um, that's what, that, that is what I'm trying to suggest here. And my suspicion is the oh, it's gerrymandering, or oh, it's the big corporations, or oh, it's that AOC's bought off. That is all essentially cope for the fact that there just actually is not a real coalition of people who don't just like feel that climate change is important, but who actually wake up every day saying, this is the issue that I want to get done. Um, because well, know, yeah, but that's, that, that, that's all I'm saying. Like there, there was that, this wasn't a majority, but there was that for abortion. There was enough of that for abortion. There was enough of that for gay rights. I think there was enough of that for civil rights. I don't see any equivalent existing for the environmental movement. So I just want to push back on you saying gerrymandering and voting doesn't work because voting would work if there actually was a coalition. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's 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 the way that I think about it. There are a couple of different issues here. One is the data suggests that you know, people do not vote climate. And so even people who say climate change is a problem, we ought to do something about climate change, they, they relatively rarely go to the ballot box and, and simply vote a climate slate. You know, people vote jobs, people vote economy, people vote schools. Unfortunately, they don't vote climate. And that sort of goes back just to the psychology of climate change. It's always towards 
a, the lower end of our priority list, uh, not always and not for all people, but generally speaking, it's just not at the top of our voters' uh, minds. But there's no doubt that gerrymandering and makes it a lot harder to pass climate policy in the U.S. There's plenty of, of, of things that one can point to as to as to why we don't have good climate change policy. And, and they all have probably a lot of, of legitimacy. But uh, it, I can't remember exactly who, it was somebody in a book about 10 years ago that said, that the, the, the most important barrier to climate change was gerrymandering. And I think, you know, to a, in a, to a very real extent, there's, there's a lot of legitimacy uh, to that. And, and now that gerrymandering seems to be totally approved by the Supreme Court, it's going to be really hard to, to get things done in this space. But once again, though, but this is just why I want to push back on this, because let me put it this way. Gerrymandering, is, as folks know, gerrymandering has to do with legislative, like with, with members of Congress and oftentimes um, state legislatures. The thing preventing climate legislation from passing right now is not in the House. It's in the Senate. And by definition, you cannot gerrymander Senate seats. It's a state. I guess you could argue that the issue is proportional representation. So I guess a climate activist would, all I just mean is I, th- I think it's very important that we'd be very precise with what specific issue is the problem. And I get your point that 10 years, 10 years ago, they said gerrymandering was the problem. But after 2018, Democrats had a sizable majority in the House. And as I understand it, they were passing some form of climate legislation. The issue is actually in the Senate. That is where they cannot over, where Democrats cannot overcome the filibuster. And even with a filibuster thing, Mansion and moderate Republicans would likely be unwilling to push for the same level of legislation as the House would. So that's the gap there. So maybe the solution then, if you're a climate activist, is that California should have more representation in the Senate than Wyoming does, because those are, you know, blue state, red state. But all I just mean is that I just I I get I get the argument the person was making about gerrymandering, but I think if you actually look at what's actually happening on the ground now, that would suggest the House is the impediment to climate action when actually it's the Senate. So it's not gerrymandering. Well, and, and the Senate is certainly is, is certainly a barrier, as we've seen this year, um, with the inability of Biden to get to get his climate stuff through. Um, but I mean, when you get to a system where just a couple dozen um congressional seats are actually up for for real election every or that that could conceivably swing one way or the other uh in the elections every two years it 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 makes it very hard to to change anything so i i don't want to overplay the gerrymandered side but i think that that simply telling people to simply get out and vote when when you've got the gerrymandering, you've got the Voting Rights Act weakening, you've got a lot of different things happening that are making it harder to to get to something like progressive climate change policy. So I guess the question, I guess this goes back to my original political critique, though. Every so this is interesting. It's one thing to say, though. I guess once again, I, a lot of a lot of my thought is informed by how the pro-life movement went about the past 50 years. They just voted. Like, this, this, this is all I'm saying. Do you, do you, do you know what I mean? And, 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 and it's true. And yes, obviously, like right now, 
gerrymandering is to the detriment of Democrats. But the guest I have talking about gerrymandering pointed out in the 70s and 80s, gerrymandering swung towards Democrats. Democrats held the House for 40 years. So I just really struggle. It's saying just vote is deeply unsexy, and I get why it's really exhausting. It's not the answer people want to hear, but it actually seems like that's actually the only answer. If, If this issue is the moral equivalent of the civil rights movement, and you know, you know, I'm pro-choice, so like I don't think this is on the level of abortion, but almost certainly we could agree that a person who has been voting pro-life for 50 years feels as seriously about this as a climate change activist did. They just voted for 50 years. So I, I you, you gotta get what I'm, I'm just I'm just like we're talking about my, my, my frustrations here, but it just seems like the main lesson from the civil rights movement, from the abortion debate, from progressive reform in the 1920s was, yeah, you actually just have to vote for a long time. If something is big and something is serious and something is easy, the actual only answer is long-term organization and voting and activism. And that's basically all that matters. And, and I think the, the question is, can that ever work for climate change? I mean, again, people don't vote climate change. Even most people who say they are concerned about climate change. I mean, a large fraction of the country at this point is alarmed or concerned about climate change. And yet, if you ask people where climate change rates when they go to the ballot box, it is never at the top for more than an incredibly small fraction of the population. So, uh, it, you know, again, the characteristics of climate change are, are not at all like the characteristics of, of motivating people on a single topic issue like abortion. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's a wicked problem and there are 25 different things going on at the same time that are making it hard to make uh, progress. And, and we could probably argue about which is the most important problem at any given point in time. But the reality is, is it's just an absolute Gordian knot when you try and figure out a way through the the problem. So here's what's difficult for me and for you to think through right now. Where does the climate policy, climate tech, climate activism, political space, right? I'm trying to bring in all the stakeholders here. Where does it go from here? Because the true differentiator between 2010 and now, between 2004 and now, is that there were a whole set of questions that had not been answered yet in the sense that, okay, look, like we don't have climate change policy right now if it's 2004 because Bush is the president. Bush is a soft climate denier who pulled the US out of the Kyoto Protocol. So if we elect Obama, or if we elect Hillary Clinton, if it's 2004, that's how we'd be thinking about it, or we elect John Kerry, that will enable us to pass legislation. Okay, that isn't true because in 2010, and this isn't a conspiracy theory, Democrats only had so much they could do. They went for financial reform, stimulus package, and healthcare. Those were the issue sets they chose. We could quibble with you know why they and how they made those decisions, but that's what they chose. So that's been answered. We've essentially had an answer of the big money problem, um, largely because of the fact that from my perspective, please push back if you think this is incorrect, but from my perspective, the diff- you've had a huge amount of money spent 
on the pro-climate side and the climate denier side is essentially packed up and gone home and greenwashed. So yes, you could say that Shell having a green shell in its ad means nothing, but at least directionally speaking, they are not the behemoths that they were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when it comes to actively pushing. So it's not quite clear that money is quite the answer. And then what we also see too is the generational question has been answered in that AOC coming into power wasn't quite enough. And there are plenty of younger Republicans who are just psychos on the climate change issue. Lauren Boebert is 36 years old. Madison Cawthorn is 27 years old. So electing younger people hasn't inherently made this issue any better. I'm always annoyed when folks do that generic, oh, well, this climate change issue is generational for Republicans. You know, It's really just the old boomers who don't get it. Like, Talk to any Republican who's not astroturfed under the age of 30. And by that, I mean like ambitious, aggressive ones. They're far more likely to be Trumpy soft deniers than be climate activists because those people have now sorted them. Let me put it this way. If you, are a, if you were a person who was a Republican in 2014 who thought climate change was your number one priority, you've become a Democrat now. So this is just a broad rant, but I'm just curious why you think about these dynamics. Well, I think you know, back in the 1980s when, when I would ask environmental groups, what what are you doing in terms of K through 12 education on climate change? You know, how, how, what's the strategy, the longer term strategy here? And, and the answer that I got was, this is an emergency. You know, we don't, we don't have time to focus on K through 12 climate teaching. Uh, we, we need action today. And, and so the, the climate movement has, has in some ways been a tactical movement for the last 30 years. There, there is nothing equivalent th- that I've ever seen to a climate you know, strategic movement, anything close to what we saw on the Republican side in terms of, for example, the, the abortion vote and the strategy that got them there and got the court to where it is today. So, so Climate activists, it's a much harder thing to organize around, but it, it just strikes me that, that we've been almost purely tactical. And, and now, you know, now we're expecting either business to step up and solve climate change, which is, a, a, I can't quite figure out how that works, um, or we're now just, expecting- So there's two versions of the business one. I suspect you're not referring to like technology saves us, right? You're referring to just like, Mark Benioff and stakeholder capitalism, like fix every. Is that is that what you're saying? Right. I mean, I, I differentiate the business and the technology conversation. So, so the, let's the focus one. on business for a second. But the claim, because look, you, you know, I did the Davos Man episode. I actually, I actually did myself the disservice of listening to Mark Benioff's latest book on stakeholder capitalism. Not a great book. Would not recommend it to folks, even though we like selling books here. But what I would say though is his claim is not that stakeholder capitalism is going to solve everything. His argument is essentially at a time when government is paralyzed, yet you have corporations with GDPs the size of mid-sized countries, their alignment behind these sorts of issues can make a difference. And essentially, it's not like it's the fix, but it's basically the only alternative. 
Um, because what always frustrates me about people like Peter Goodman, once again, I've had him on the show, spoken to him on breaking points. I like Peter a lot. Um, quick side note, he keeps calling, he thinks I'm Sagar. Um, it was really funny. Um, he, this is just a bonus Easter egg for the audience. He, I did, I did the episode with Peter Goodman on Davos men back in February, the episode came out and he tweeted out the episode said, he told me this, he told me this was my favorite episode recording I did on the podcast. He was in a lot of places. That's like a huge, that's a huge compliment as an interviewer. But then he tweeted mm-hmm. out, I had the most amazing conversation with at Esager. And really? I was like, 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 Peter, I know that Sagar has 350,000 followers on Twitter and I only have 18,000, but come on, man, you don't have to flex that hard. But then I had up on breaking points last month. We had a great conversation. We went for 20 minutes and we closed. He's like, always love talking to you. Thanks again, Sagar. He signed off. So he actually, so I'm no longer insulted. He just actually thinks I'm Sagar. He just is like, he's like, we, we talked for, together. He's like, he's like, thanks, Sagar. Like, let me know when you ever, you want to ever talk again. So that's just a side note. But the point is my beef of, with, with my beef with the book is that it does what I think the climate, the climate scientists we were talking about at the beginning of the show do, which is that it really, they just basically act as if the only reason why, sorry, let me, let me, let me put it a little more eloquently. You, as you can tell, I, I don't talk about this issue much, so the thought doesn't come quite as quickly. Critics from a climate policy and a Peter Goodman perspective come to this issue as if the only thing that's stopping climate, it's like you said earlier, is just like will. This is straightforward. It's that like these politicians like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, they just don't have the will to do it. And it's just like that. But as you yourself just acknowledged, this is actually like, I actually cannot think of a policy issue that's more complicated than this. Like actually, could you, could you think of a single, like the, the combination of science, technology, business, different actors, hyperpolarization, culture wars, difficulties. I don't think, I cannot think of a single, there, 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 it's kind of funny. Like there, there are issues where one part of it is complicated. So immigration, the politics are very difficult in immigration, but if you add some sort of consensus, you could lower or increase the number of people you want to have in the country. That's just like a very direct, straightforward thing. If you look at the China tariff issue, either we have too many Chinese goods coming in, we don't have enough Chinese goods coming in. Let's pass a bill based off of that. That's not how climate change works. So that's just my frustration. If you just like reflect on that, because I just think someone has to speak up for the for the center left democratic politician who I just do not see any way out of this for. Well, I mean, there's there's two issues there. One one is that I mean, climate change is a wicked problem, and and you define a wicked, wicked problem, by the way. Well, there, there's a whole set of variables that go into wicked problems. There there is no solution per se. And every time you you try something over here, it makes something over there worse. Uh, and and so it, it it's really problematic. And people have called climate change a super wicked problem, which may or may not be particularly uh, helpful. But no, it, it is it is far more complicated than anything else out there. I think the next thing I'd like to talk about before we really sum things up is everything you've just articulated makes me more sympathetic to climate change activists attempting to make everything about climate change. The Green New Deal isn't just 
a climate change mitigation thing. It's this broad reimagining of American society that makes us more dynamic and engaged. This is climate change isn't just like climate change. It's like a racial issue. It's a healthcare issue. All those different bits. Like it's easy to critique that from the outside. But it seems to me what they are doing from a political perspective is trying to deal with the fact, to your point, that climate change is number eight on the priority list. So if you make everything a climate change issue, hypothetically, you could see a war where that would move it up the scale. Or you could say, like, hey, like, is like immigration one of your biggest priorities? Well, like there's this climate migration issue and like this, you know, in the southern border, this, 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 and that. So can you reflect on that dynamic? Because it's both it's one of those issues where it's clearly not been effective. And it's also kind of, it's a little also I, this, you've brought this up before. This is a frustration point for me. The perfect example of this is when people say things like the DOD did that one study this one time, not this one time, but the DOD did that study that says that climate change is a national security issue. Therefore, Republicans are going to care about climate change. That's, That's literally not how that works. And someone who studies the Republican party and foreign policy you know this too, you're well read on this topic. There's an increasing gap between the career military Pentagon folks who write those reports and the actual GOP. Just look at the ratios of non-vaccine compliance in the enlisted ranks in the National Guards, Reserves, and main Army, Marine, Corps, Navy, and Air Force, and you'll see that gap there. So that's just another example of people trying to make everything about climate change, not understanding that that, that doesn't actually translate outside of your heads into reward impacts. Well, the way I think about that is, is that to, to some extent, it's, it's backfired. I, I think I, I use a, a chess analogy. And if you think about the chessboard and you've got team urgency on one side of the chessboard and team no urgency on the other side of the chessboard and team no urgency has a much easier job. All it has to do is defend the status quo, mm-hmm. whereas team urgency is trying to totally change the status quo. And, and the problem with making everything about climate change and the problem with making, you know, with talking about climate justice as opposed to climate change um, is, is you, you, every time you expand, and, and it's certainly a desirable thing to talk about climate justice and et cetera, but whenever you, you sort of try and broaden your tent, you're bringing new constituencies onto the team no urgency side of the board as well. So that team is growing at the same time that your team is growing. And so you've really got to think about, you know, are you making it easier or harder? And at this point, because we've now sort of turned climate change into, into a culture war topic um, uh, par excellence, we're really in a conundrum of, of what do we do about, can we do anything about uh, climate change? And you know, it, it, the, the thing on the, the business side, just to, to wrap that one up quickly, is that putting aside greenwashing issues and, and all sorts of putting aside any sort of negative or bad intention issues, it's just not clear how, if you don't price carbon, if you don't have public policy, it's just not at all clear how business leaders are supposed to proxy for public policy and do things that might not make economic sense right away when they have shareholders. So it, it's, just, it's just not clear how this works without policy. So you just helped me remember my defense of the business leaders. Peter, and the way, no offense, you just articulated this argument, are acting as if AOC is saying the following. 
well, we could pass climate change legislation, but all these nice business owners have stepped up and signed a World Economic Forum pledge to do this, 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 and that. And they have this new highfalutin concept called stakeholder capitalism. Therefore, we don't have to do anything. That is literally not happening. And that is the way that Peter frames it. I would like to see a single individual of note who has said the following, because of stakeholder capitalism and Mark Benioff's movement, we do not have to pass climate legislation. Stakeholder, that, that, is, that has literally not happened. Stakeholder capitalism and the technology deus ex machina are responses to the inability of the public sector to take action on climate change. That is all they are. They are not the front-facing thing. They're not plan A. They're not plan B. They're not plan C. They are plan D. So to to claim that plan D is the reason for plan A not happening is just very bad political analysis. That is what I am saying. That is my critique. Well, and it's sort of analogous to to saying that that individuals can solve climate change by driving less. You know, it 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 just doesn't it just doesn't work, and it and it and it doesn't make uh, any sense. I mean, as much as one might like for for business leaders Wait, to you, step you, up, you just you just um, quickly referenced a a thing that makes sense if you're a climate change person, but not an individual person who doesn't. Why why doesn't that make why doesn't so let's not just say driving. Like, there's a set of decisions we make every single day which contribute to climate change. If we collectively made different decisions, how would that not make a difference? Well, the issue there is uh, if everybody did X, yeah, then it would make a difference. But not everybody is ever going to do X and not even close to that is going to do X in a totally voluntary world. And so most people, if you ask today, what what are you doing about climate change? Most people actually respond that I recycle, mm-hmm. but recycling has almost no impact on climate change whatsoever. And so it, it, it's really problematic. And the issue here is, remember that to tackle climate change, we have to fundamentally change our whole energy system and structure. We have to decarbonize our system. How does the decision to, to walk to the store today instead of drive Unfortunately, it doesn't have an impact on decarbonizing the system. So you've got to figure out in a, in a wicked problem where your levers are and how you can push those levers effectively. And it's, it's just not clear how voluntary individual actions do that. And it's not clear how voluntary business actions do that. There, there was an interesting case, and I can't remember the name of the group, but it was one of the big business groups about 10 years ago. They said, we're going to step in here and we're going to make a difference. And two years later, they came back and said, you know, we've been trying and we've realized that we actually can't do this on our own. We need policymakers to create the policy framework that allows us to do what we want to do, but we can't just do it on our own. And that's, that's the problem with thinking of, of stakeholder capitalism as some proxy for global government. Yeah, but and this this is the last word on this topic, but no one is claiming that. There are two specific claims that are being made about stakeholder capitalism. One, Peter is making the explicit claim that the existence of that group, let's say in 2012, actively retards in the 
using that term properly in this case, government efforts to, to, to handle climate change. Government says we could pass something, but instead we've got this convenient thing we could offload to the private sector. Literally no one says that. And the people who are impediments to climate legislation, basically moderate Democrats all the way to far-right Republicans, literally do not care what Mark Benioff says. They do not care. They don't even know what the word is. They would probably know what the word economic forum is. They'd know what Davos is, but that would be a whole other different context. So it's not, no one is substituting. And then B, and then the, the second point is really just the fact that at the end of the day, I just think it is a, it's a sad proxy. Okay. Let me put it this way. If, if anything, the reason why the stakeholder capitalism people come off as bad is that they are not as direct as they need to be about what has gotten them to the point where they do this. Mark Benioff sees a world where effectively nothing big, quote unquote, is going to happen on climate change in the next decade. Therefore, he can fill that time. He could fill a tiny part of that void by getting a fancy book and buying Time magazine and being kind of a douche. Like that, 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 is, that is what Mark Benioff is doing. Um, and if he were more honest about that, you, I, would, I would bet there would be just less like pushback. That's all this is. That's what he knows. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, that, that's just, I, I think that's just what, I don't know why I'm so defensive around this point. I think I'm defensive around this point because I just see such a gap between the claims that critics are making and the actual politics. Well, the, you know, the, the one thing that's really notable about the, the business community historically is that they have generally never pushed for public policy. I mean, that's changing a little bit now. And, and there, there are more groups of business leaders saying that they're advocating for, for policy. But you know, Sheldon Whitehouse, even as recently as, as Senator Whitehouse, as recently as last year, made the comment that the only company that ever lobbies us on the Hill on climate change is Patagonia. And so the, um, the, the place where companies probably could make a big difference, at least potentially, in terms of, of public policy, they have generally not been there. And, wait, wait, and so, why, why, why would that? Once again, this is my political now. I'm not just trying to be a to be a, a Debbie Downer, but why would Nike, Intel, Silicon Valley tech companies knocking on Republican doors make a difference? I think that if if companies had been actively working this issue for the last 20, 30 years, we could be in a very different place than we are today. Today we're it's a bit of a of a I mean, with with the polarization, et cetera, not totally clear what happens in the near term, even with business support. Uh, but you know, business has has business is almost still entirely focused on you know, reducing its carbon footprint at the individual company level and saying, yeah, that's that's how we're going to make progress on climate change. And and unfortunately, you know, even if twenty percent of businesses reduce their carbon footprint, that doesn't solve climate change. And, and so you've, for a wicked problem like this, you've really got to figure out what your strategy is and what your tactics are and, and how you make progress. If you just throw stuff at the wall to see if it sticks, uh, we've been doing that now for decades and nothing has really stuck yet in terms of making a big difference. So three last frames slash questions here. So from my perspective, 
to take this to the start of the episode, the number one task facing anyone in the climate change, let's say team, um, what were the two sides you said? Team They're, urgency, team no urgency. Then I, I like that framework. So the number one thing that team urgency needs to figure out right now is how do you deculturify, de deculture warify, to use a technical term, this issue? But to make it even more complicated, and I think this also should reset the way we think about this, look at how quickly COVID became a culture war issue. Because you know how it was the whole, like, the, the, we, you and I both know this cliched story, but the big story is, oh, if you take a frog and you drop it into a hot boiling pot of water, the frog jumps out. Versus you put a frog in lukewarm water and gradually turn it up, it just boils and dies because it gets used to it and it's comfortable. Obviously, in that metaphor, people are saying that climate change is the example of what happens when you slowly turn the dial up. But COVID, COVID went culture war in 30 seconds or less. There was about a week and a half before it went culture war. And that's the definition of you're dropped into a hot, into a hot um, boiling pot of water. People are literally dying. There are all these issues. There are very active debate things that could happen. Solutions were there. There was congressional energy, and it still got polarized. So I guess this is basically two questions. Part A would be, what has COVID taught you in terms of societal responses to big problems that are wicked? And then B, what would you say needs to be done to deculture warify this issue? Yeah. Well, I, I, for one thing, COVID isn't a wicked problem, right? I mean, I mean, it's a virus and, and it's relatively obvious what you ought to do about it or ideally. Um, uh, and, and so the, the, the sad thing is, is that, you know, there was so much discussion of how we were going to use the COVID crisis to build back better and to, to spend all that money on, on things that would be good for climate change, et cetera. And ultimately, none of that has happened globally, virtually none of that. So in some ways, we've, we've squandered what could have been sort of a reset uh, opportunity. I think, you know, the issue of now that we're into the, into the culture war, how do we get out of it for climate change is, is uh, the, the most pressing problem right now. And, and I haven't seen any great uh, ideas for, for how you do that. I mean, there's a lot of science out there on how we could better communicate climate change and climate risk. And the, you know, the reality is, is that we are significantly underestimating the risks of climate change. Uh, and, and so we, we could be very badly surprised in the next 10, 20 years by what, what comes. But, but we do know how to do better on communicating climate change. But, but even that doesn't get translated into practice. We yell at our, our own constituencies and try and mobilize our own constituencies um, in a way that just, that just fosters the, the culture war thing. And you see that from both sides of this issue. And I, I, I have to admit, I have not yet seen the book that, that definitively says how we get out of, of the mess that we're in right now. Look, I mean, I think part of this, and I think I just know this because like I've hung out in like weird right-wing circles for a while. I think the problem is really that folks, team urgency genuinely just, and this is such, this is such an obvious answer and it's such a lame answer because of that. I don't think team urgency actually understands or knows Republican voters at a deep level. 
I can, I'm telling you, you could give me the climate change comms masterclass. And I will tell you in the constituencies that matter, it basically wouldn't make a difference at this point in the game. That's why I was talking about how there were some off ramps in the 1990s and maybe 2000s. You know, the only, you know, the only thing that's broken through right now, and it probably wouldn't break through if it was actually put to the test, nuclear power. Right now, nuclear power is hot on the right. Now, the problem is, there's obviously divisive bits on the left on this, but let's just put it lightly. A lot of my friends on the right right now who are cheering about nuclear power, let's see if they would be fond of a nuclear power plant being built in their backyard. Um, so what, that's an example of it's very easy to say. And, that, and I'm not just talking about like the, like the meltdown fears. Like we, we did an episode of Mark Andreessen, right? And we, we, we spent a whole portion talking about nuclear power. A lot of people love that stuff. I think nuclear power on the right is probably the equivalent of climate change on the urbanized center left in the sense that if you're asked about it, you support it, you're down for it. But pedal to the metal is the American right down for, I mean, Mark Andreessen was saying we need to build a thousand nuclear reactors in the next 50 years. And he was making the point scientifically, they could be smaller, you could have the, there's like all the, all the scientific thing, mumbo jumbo, right? It doesn't matter. The right isn't down for that project because that project requires you to be on team urgency. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, the, 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 because like, once again, if you do not care about climate change, if you're Alex, and this is, and this is like to your point of your email, why you think Alex Epstein is such a, he's an effective communicator because all he's basically saying is the following. He's saying, oh yeah, like climate change is real, but what we have right now is actually pretty great. And to be honest, you prefer what you have now to what you could have then. Well, and, and if that's saying, true, what was, well, and if that's true, then like, you know what, like, let's just, you know, burn some coal and then we'll use natural gas. And then we'll do, actually, no, the, the obvious Republican response is let's do all of the above. And on, and you know what I mean? Let's just do all of the above. Let's drill, baby, drill. Let's get natural gas. Let's use biofuels. Let's explore fusion. Let's see if something's up with hydrogen fuel cells. Let's get Teslas to a bunch of people. Sure. That is different than let's, uh, let's embark on a thousand nuclear reactors in 40 years. Now, reading Alex Epstein does not lead you to conclude that you should pursue that project. No, I mean, would Alex you, Epstein you, says we should be burning a lot more fossil fuel. I mean, his basic thing is, is that over the last hundred years, temperatures have increased by one degree centigrade. Things still seem pretty good. So let's assume it'll increase by another degree centigrade in the next hundred years. Where's the problem? And, and part of the problem is, is that temperatures could increase four or five degrees centigrade in the next 50, 60, 70 years, not one degree centigrade. And so, so he's, he, he's totally ignoring the risk side of, of the equation and the fact that there are a lot of unknowns about when we encounter tipping points and how bad they'll be and will the Amazon go to Savannah and, and will the, the Atlantic current slow down or stop and leave Europe freezing? I mean, there are all sorts of things that could happen as a result of, of climate change that, that Alex Epstein just totally ignores and, and glosses over and just sort of assumes that the past will, will is, is simply prelude for the future. And, and we know that's a bad mistake. How do you think about the nuclear issue? 
Well, I was I was literally in the room when environmentalists were having the first conversations with the nuclear industry in the 1980s about climate change. And uh, basically what happened in those meetings is that the nuclear industry, they wanted the support of the environmental groups. And, but the nuclear industry said, we just wanna keep building the reactors that we're, we've been building in terms of the, the light water boiling reactors. Uh, we, you know, we don't wanna rapidly move to passively safe or modular or small scale. We want you to support us and simply continuing to do what we've already been doing. And the environmental community says, we're not gonna support that because we think there are safety issues. We think there are nuclear waste issues. We're, we're not simply going, going to say, sure, full speed ahead to nuclear power uh, because of climate change. And, and so I, that was a potential off-ramp in the sense that one could have gotten uh, the environmental community onto a path to promote sort of better nuclear, so to speak. Uh, and it was, it was basically shut down by the nuclear industry. And, and that, that's really unfortunate. And today- you know, Wait, we, quick question. From a yeah. climate change perspective, do you think that was a bad trade? Well, no, because I don't, I, I mean, I, I was arrested at Seabrook when I was in college because, you know, we've, we've, we've had some close, really close uh, situations with, with even existing nuclear technology. And I know all the statistics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, you know, I think we had an opportunity at one point to, to move towards what might've been modular, passively safe, uh, reactors that that wouldn't have the problems that thousand megawatt reactors potentially uh, have, but but today there's a real issue of whether whether that makes economic sense at all. Uh, and one could argue that a lot of that. I know that, that Sagar on the show has argued that that you know the cost of nuclear is all due to the regulation and et cetera. But but you know the other the other technologies that we have in terms of more renewable stuff those costs have fallen so dramatically that it's not really clear that, that new nuclear can compete uh, economically. And you can one can argue those numbers up one way and, and down the other. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not anti-nuclear, but it's not clear to me how we, it's how we solve the nuclear problem, so to speak, uh, because even it now is so polarized across several fronts. What do you think about, and this is why it's a difficult place right now, what do you think about the, the German example, which seems to be the whole eating crow thing the environmental side is having to deal with right now? Basically, Germany is screwing everything up, so it's you know, complicated. But the whole, the whole you know, well, we'll shut down our nuclear plants, we'll transition, and now we're just burning more coal. Like, how, do you, how do you internalize and think about that narrative? Yeah, I think we're also becoming dependent and appeasing of Russia for 10 years until we're here. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, you know, to, to, to go in and, and, and argue, for example, that France ought to shut down its nuclear plants would be obviously pretty bizarre. Uh, since and France for context, is, 70%, yeah, 70%. France is largely dependent on nuclear. So even though Germany wasn't that, uh, if, if, if you're concerned about climate change, it, it should be a little bit hard to simply throw nuclear under the bus. You can have legitimate arguments about 
you know, should we be building new reactors, et cetera? Uh, but, uh, but saying we ought to just stop, we ought to shut down all the nuclear and replace it with renewables is, is just not realistic. Uh, and, and I think, you know, unfortunately, we're sort of seeing the results of that in, in Germany in, in, the, in the, the worst case of, of what's going on right now. What does that say then about renewable energy? Because to your point, the cost of renewables have been going down, but you know, I've obviously known you for 30 years. And I remember back in, we'd be walking around to 7-Eleven back in high school. And in 2008, you told me that the prices of renewables were going down. It seems the Germans believed that too. Well, not just the prices, but also just the effectiveness and thought they'd be able to substitute. Like what went wrong? So the, the, the German plan was not, look, we think that post Fukushima, the risk is just, and actually, I think this would have been much more intellectually honest. We think that nuclear power, in terms of the power we have, is so dangerous that whether it's coal, whether it's renewables, whether it's national, nat- natural gas from Russia, we don't care. We're getting off of nuclear. That's one version of the argument. I think that would have been a much more serious version than what we got, which was we're getting off. Uh, they, they basically presented it as if there were no trade-offs for losing nuclear. They basically presumed that they could substitute for renewables and also not have any foreign policy issues with Russia. Is that a good way of summing up what went wrong here? Well, yeah, I mean, you're assuming and 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 they have brought on a lot of renewables, but but the overall energy use has also gone up. And so the 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 share of renewables is is not as large as as a lot of people uh, tend to think. But yeah, the, you know, you burn a lot more gas and then suddenly you don't have any gas. So it it there are always trade offs in this stuff. This comes back to there ain't any such thing as a free lunch. And and that we tend to ignore a lot of the the trade-offs in this space. And we should be having those conversations, not just religiously shutting down one conversation or another. So, you know, you've got the the, the pro-nuclear uh, people, uh, one of whom you've you've interviewed on your show, uh, basically, you know, trash talking renewables. And you've got all the renewables people trash talking nuclear. And, and that just doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to figure out a path forward on climate change. Everybody is, we're always, everybody on team urgency is arguing that they have the silver bullet solution. And if there's anything we should have learned in the last 30 years, there is no silver bullet for team urgency. And so we need to be thinking about how does team urgency actually function as a team, as opposed to everybody saying, hey, I've got the answer just come on, come, come on over to my square on the board. And that's the way that team urgency has sort of been trying to, to play the game. And it's, it's been a catastrophic failure. So to wrap, what would be your, what are the next steps, right? So your team urgency, we went over a bunch of things that didn't work. What well, do you think I, is yeah, next? I, I think you know, the, the, the biggest failure in, in this space, in my view, is that let's say you have 100 million people in the United States that are alarmed or concerned about climate change. And, and that number is probably not, not too far off. 100 million people is a lot of people. Uh, you know, 99,950,000 of those people have no idea what they ought to be doing to combat climate change. No idea. And, say, and so they say, well, I recycle. 
So the fact that we've been at this for 30, 40, 50 years, and we have a constituency of 100 million people who have no idea how they can help and what they could be doing day to day that might actually make a difference is a catastrophic failure for the climate movement. And what, what I would like to see is, is engaging those people, as opposed to every group simply trying to, to recruit members for its activity, there are a lot of things that we ought to be trying to do at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, uh, that if you could mobilize those 100 million people, you could get some really interesting things done. But, but there is no such effort uh, in the, in, even in the climate community today. And so it, it, it's, it's really sad that we're just leaving this massive constituency on the sidelines. Yeah. So the thing that's interesting for me, just to sum all this up, is the reason why I'm an optimist around American politics long term is I don't actually think diff 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 different eras require different skill sets. And it seems to me that what you were describing is there's been a lack of like actual strategy and strategic approach to these specific questions. And as the climate picture gets worse, as let's say abortion politics swing different skill sets of leaders and movements are going to be selected for. So if it's 2008, that era is selected for, let's form a bunch of nonprofits that are kind of lame, but get everyone a nice six-figure paycheck. And then maybe we'll get this big Obama bill. A previous era of it said, hey, Tom Steyer wants to run for president. He could half-ass a weird climate change group that doesn't actually do anything. By do anything, I mean from a pure effectiveness perspective. A lot of people were employed there. That era is over, and we're in the era of folks are actually going to have to come up with something. I think that I think people be people operate based off of incentives, and I think a lot of folks are going to see the new incentives and select for different skill sets. So I think you see that across a bunch of different areas, and I think this is one of those that will just provoke that. It's one of the it's one of the ways that I think our system self regenerates and repairs itself. Um, so it's really that I think it's just that we we've been stuck with legacy and and the quick thing though, and I'll let you close. I don't want people to confuse what I'm saying with a generational change question, because once again, a lot of the folks you see in the sunrise movement, 18, 19, 20 year olds, are also doing this old style of tactic. Madison Cawthorn and Lauren Bober are very young, yet they are not holding team urgency views. There are 70-somethings, there are 60-somethings, there are 50-somethings, there are 40-somethings, 30-somethings in my case, who I think have different perspectives on these types of questions and have skill sets that are better suited. So that's just what I would, what I would, what I would close on. I, the, the metaphor that I use for, for sort of the, the climate movement over the last 40 years is that we've had several close calls with policy, including this year, at least it looked like it might be close for a while. Uh, in terms of the Build Back Better Act, um, but it it it's sort of we we keep recreating the charge of the light brigade in the in the Crimean War, uh, Crimean War of you know uh, of horseback uh, cavalry against fortified artillery positions, and they get slaughtered, and and unfortunately, team urgency just keeps mounting these charges and getting slaughtered and and somehow we we need to break out of that the unfortunate thing unlike all of these other topics that we can talk about 
you know, climate change isn't waiting around. So it's progressing and it's going to continue to get worse. And so we, we, we don't have the luxury of, of sorting something out over 10, 20, 25 years the way we do with a lot of other social problems. And the charge of the light brigades, the right example, because you know what? They, most of them got killed, but guess what? We're talking about them almost 200 years later. So there is glory in that last stand, largely pointless charge. And I do think there is just, there's a, because I'm more centrist and just pragmatic, this, I can, I just can't summon this feeling, but and once again, I also understand that like moral centrists and pragmatists have made all sorts of bad calls. Um, I don't know how this is for you, but whenever I feel my centrist hat coming on, I'm honest to myself and say like, hey, like, what would you say to MLK? Do you know what I mean? If, do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Because I don't want to, I, I don't want to sound righteous and be like, look at all these like radicals. They're so stupid. Like the way to do this is to perfectly gamify these things out and understand how the system works and this and this and this and this and this and, this and that. Um, and whenever I start feeling self-righteous about that, I'm honest with myself. Like, let's take away my racial background. You know, let's just pretend I'm a moderate from the Portland, Oregon suburbs in the 1950s and 1960s. It's very easy to manage myself as a moderate who's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's calm down. You know, in the great scope of things, things for Black people are way better than they were in 1910. So at the rate we're going in the 1980s, then it will have really solved that. Um, and I want to make sure I'm not making that mistake here. All that being said, I think we've clearly swung too far in the other direction. Because I think what was so impressive about MLK in the, in, the, you know, in the civil rights movement was they were able to merge moral righteousness with an actual effective plan. And right now you have moral righteousness without an effective plan. Well, on the climate on the climate change space, uh, I, I heard an argument many years ago that that the best argument and the argument that we would be most likely to to be able to coalesce around would be an ethical and moral argument about climate change. And yet, unfortunately, that has almost not uh, that's never been the dominant mode of communication or the dominant mode of argument. And you almost never hear that argument. About to, about the ethics of climate change, you just don't hear that today. Yeah, uh, but like, what is that? Uh, this is where my skeptic hat will come on. I, what does that even mean? What like we I, have an obligation you... to the earth and to our children? Like, no one, you know this, Dad. No one makes decisions based on their grandchildren in any topic. No, 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 actually, a lot of people make. Everybody makes decisions on the basis of their grandchildren. The problem is that, that generally speaking, they're not thinking about their grandchildren when they're making the decision. Uh, that that when you get you know these epiphanies and business leaders etc it's because their grandchildren went up to them and said hey what are you doing about this problem and suddenly they have a totally different view of climate change or gay rights or whatever uh, so there I think there is a strong element here where the the morality side of some of these implications of climate change could be far more effectively, communicated and used Can I push uh, on this than it has been. But this is the problem though. And this is going back to my beef of Peter, Peter Goodman. This is what happens when you call me Sagar twice in a row. Um, the person preventing climate change action is not an upper class white dude in California who's in his late seventies and his 
very woke daughter's grandchild. Well, here's let's actually talk as to what's basically happening here, right? So when you're saying their grandchild comes up to them, what's happened here is you had a guy who, let's assume he's self-made and wealthy, was a Republican because in the 70s and the 80s, they liked Ronald Reagan, they liked low taxes, they liked limited government, all those different bits. They're a Republican. They get wealthy, they like low taxes, they're having a good time. They have a daughter. This daughter, because of just thin little background and educational polarization, goes to a top-tier college because she's there. She starts voting not based purely off of her father's wealth, but based on her the fact that she went to a university and then went to gone to go to graduate school, aka she's now a center-left Democrat or left, depending on where she lives. Then, by definition, her child, aka the grandchild, is going to say, "Hey, like at my school, like my fancy private. I'm not trying to be disparaging, but this is true. Like I went to a, I went to you know I went to private school. Nothing the matter of private school, but at my private school, they're talking about Earth Day, and like it seems crazy." Then moderate Republican grandfather feels guilty. Fair. Like that's that's the story you were basically telling. But guess what? He was not the impediment to climate change. Climate change will not change in this country on the metric you're deciding until you have a middle, a solidly upper middle class guy who didn't graduate from college, but found, but like owns a car dealership or founded a business or like runs a bunch of plumbers or electricians. They make like, let's say hundred to 180K a year without a college degree to when their grandchild tells them about the issue. But that's not how it works. Do, do, do you see what I mean? Like this is once again, my Peter Goodman beef. The beef is acting as if the impediment is rich dude in California is just not true. The impediment and once again, I'm not trying to be disparaging because the people listen to the show from this demographic, the people most opposed to climate change did not go to college, are probably middle class and are polarized towards the right. That's that their, their grandchildren are not coming up to them. But they're also values based. And uh, so it, it's not just it's not just the rich Californians that have values that they end up acting on. We all have values that we act on. Uh, so, so the question is, can you frame, is there a way to, to use the framing of this around values? Can you find enough common values to break the polarization? And I think at least arguably, there's a case that could be made there. Uh, but but I, I, you know, I don't see it being really tried very effectively. I will actually close with this. And people have picked up a very doomery very nitpicky tone to my questioning here. And it just comes from the following anecdote, a a very smart friend of mine, college educated, Ivy league educated on the right said to me, you know, I used to really believe that climate change was a real serious issue until I saw everything with COVID and Dr. Fauci was wrong on so many things. The establishment was wrong about so many things. I am now much more skeptical of climate change and the consensus than I was before. I think that level of analysis is more explicit than it would be for most people, but I think that's a way of summing up how the way a lot of people feel. So I just don't see a way directly with the current set of actors and the current circumstances. Everybody gets it to that, but we'll uh, we'll close here. This has been this has been fun. Mark slash dad. We'll we'll have to do this again 
um, I'll be sure to, if I book someone like Alex, do a better job of prep and not do it while I'm moving. Always good things, Dad. Thank you for joining us on The Realignment. You're welcome, Marshall. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the show's mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.